Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. 
Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Amen. Mike's going to come and open that passage to us now. Please keep your Bibles open. We'll be uh, spending some time in that uh, passage. Now, one of the most important things in life is to understand yourself, isn't it? And yet the funny thing is, most of us don't. I overheard two women talking recently. I won't say their names. They're friends. And one of them said, you know, I think I might have ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I might have ADHD. And the other one said, oh, yeah, that's obvious. (laughs) Didn't you know? You know, we really don't understand ourselves, do we? How we come across, how we tick, what drives us. At some level, we sense that we don't know ourselves, and perhaps that's why online personality tests are so popular. I wonder if you've ever been drawn into them. Are you a peacemaker, a reformer, a helper, achiever, individualist, investigator, loyalist, enthusiast, or challenger? Well, you may not know. But you could take the Enneagram test. Not only is it interesting, some claim it can help your career. One of the great Christian thinkers of all time, John Calvin, was a French theologian in the 16th century. Calvin wrote, nearly all wisdom we possess, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. And what Calvin meant by knowledge of ourselves wasn't the personality test kind of knowledge. Far from it. He meant this. Knowledge of self is indispensable because from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity and weakness, we can then recognize the true light of wisdom, the true sound virtue, the full goodness and purity that rests in God alone. See, by seeing how wicked we are, we can see how holy and perfect God is. So the goal of self-knowledge is not to discern your skill set, personality type, or get in touch with your past, although those things have their place. For, For John Calvin, knowing yourself is essential because we will only begin to seek God when we become displeased with ourselves. We say it again. We will only begin to seek after God when we begin to become displeased with ourselves. Now, with that in mind, can I invite you to an art gallery today? It's a small place. It's quite exclusive. In fact, it only has five paintings. But if you will take the time to look at them, you will see yourself. And if you see truly, then you will become displeased with yourself. And that is a good thing because it will drive us to true knowledge of God. These five portraits, these five pictures, are found in Mark chapter 12, the reading that Jess just read for us, verse 13 to 44. And here are the five pictures. The nitpicker, the cynic, the seeker, the show-off, and the lover. All of them are in chapter 12. This part of Mark's gospel shows us this wide range of human responses to God, and the picture it paints of us You and me is profound. So let's take the time to look at them, to pause, 
Take notice, as you would studying a great painting. Notice the details, reflect, and be honest about ourselves. Let me ask this question. Is one of these paintings more like a mirror? Is one of them more like a mirror? Are you going to see yourself in here? Number one, the nitpicker, verses 13 to 17. Back over the page. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, the word later in verse 13 connects this to what has gone before. The context was Jesus has come to Jerusalem, entering it like a a conquering king, riding on a colt that's never been ridden before, an exclusive animal, and he's come and, and ridden into the cheers of the crowd, people spreading their cloaks on the ground like the red carpet and waving impromptu banners of palm branches and leaves from the field and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, a clear public statement of the king coming back to his, his city. He went straight to the temple, inspected it, and the next day judged it as only the king could. And now the most powerful group in the culture are out to destroy him, a group of 71 men called the Sanhedrin. And so these next two incidents, where the Pharisees come and the Sadducees come, these are two of the groups represented in the Sanhedrin. These are not random chats or pleasant fireside conversations about theology. They are traps to try and catch Jesus out so that they can destroy him. And in verse 13 to 15, we read that these strange bedfellows come. The Pharisees... And the Herodians, strange bedfellows, they got into bed back in chapter 3, verse 6. Now, the Pharisees were all about God and the Bible and living righteous lives and bringing morality back to the people. But the Herodians were the kind of corrupt, self-serving political types who were all about cozying up to the Romans. These two never normally get on, but now they are united because they both hate Jesus Christ. Now they think they found their moment They spring the trap, a closed question. You know what a closed question is? It's one where you you can only answer yes or no. And that's the sort of question you should never ask in a Bible study. We all do it. Yes, no answer. They think Jesus will be called out either way. And the question is this. Uh, uh, We know you're a man of integrity. You know, do I look like a piece of toast? Why are you buttering me up? They they butter him up for a bit and then they say, you know, the uh, poll tax that we're supposed to pay to Caesar? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, the reason why they think this is such a clever trap, and it is, is that if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay it, then he's going to get in trouble with the Roman authorities. If Jesus says, yes, we should pay it, it makes him look like he's sold out to the Romans and he's really godless. So they think they've caught him on the horns of a dilemma. But Jesus sees through them. It says he knows their hypocrisy. So he asks them for a coin. Jesus doesn't even have one. So they go rummaging around in their pockets, and they find a coin. Let me see if I've got one. I wish I did have a silver denarius. I've got a pound coin. And there on one side of it is a picture of, uh, well, this is the queen. But it's a picture of Tiberius, probably Tiberius Caesar. And on the other side is a picture of uh, the priestess. Now, this coin is worth about a day's wages. The Romans had imposed this tax on the Jews on top of property tax, on top of VAT. There is also the poll tax, and poll taxes are always unpopular. Anyone here old enough to remember the poll tax in Britain will remember how unpopular it was. Now, many Jews regarded the Romans as wicked, idol worshippers, and for them, 
one of the most offensive aspects of Roman rule was this poll tax, which had to be paid using the emperor's coin because it's got an image of the emperor on it. And around that is a little inscription that reads this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, declaring him to be a semi-divine being. They made an image of Caesar and put him on a coin. And the Jews, to the Jews, that's so offensive. They barely wanted to touch it. And Jesus says, just tell me whose image and inscription is on that coin. This is a brilliant reply. Verse 16. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They brought the coin. Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, said Jesus, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Firstly, he's implicitly rejecting violent revolution. Coming from where Jesus did up north in Galilee, that was what people usually did, kick off and, and, and cause a violent armed uprising. A man called Judas the Galilean, some years before this, had led an armed uprising against Rome because of the tax. So Jesus is, is implicitly saying, violent revolution is not the way. I'm not going to lead that kind of revolution because that revolution is not revolutionary enough. What we need is a transformation of values. Secondly, give the government what you owe it. In other words, followers of Jesus are not to drop out of society and avoid its obligations. Christians should pay their taxes, should pay for their tram ticket, should take part in elections, should honor the authorities, the police, the magistrate, local government, the court system, MPs, our government. We should be good citizens. We should affirm the state's authority, which, according to Romans 13, is derived from God. But there are limits to what one owes the government. There's another lord over the rulers. States can overstep their bounds and become idolatrous. Revelation 13. Christians owe Caesar something, but not everything. So, taxes, according to Jesus, are actually pretty trivial compared to what you owe God. You may owe Caesar money, but what do you owe God? Everything. Everything you have, you've ever had, ever will, came from the good hand of God. God doesn't owe you anything. He made you to know him, to walk with him, to worship him, to live for him. Anything less than that is subhuman. The great theologian Augustine in the fourth century wrote, You, Lord, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What do we owe God? Love. Taxes are trivial compared to what we owe God. So what do we see in this first picture? These people who think they know their Bibles, the Pharisees, coming to Jesus with this tricky little question. You know what? It's the attitude of the nitpicker, the pedant, the person who focuses on the rules and the do's and don'ts. Should we do this or do this? And they always talk like this. <laughs> this person is a moralist, proud because they think they're more righteous than the other people, especially those people over there who don't even know the rules. 
And this is one of the big problems with the Pharisees and the reason they're always clashing with Jesus and they were so threatened by him because they are deeply committed to being their own Lord and Savior and Jesus always seems to break the boundaries and the rules. He tears into that approach to life, excuse me, like a wrecking ball or somebody punching a microphone. And he says, sure, keep the laws, pay your taxes, give Caesar what you owe him, but don't overlook the greatest thing which is that God wants all of you. Can you see that nitpicking spirit in yourself today as we look in this portrait? Anyone? Don't put your hand up. I wonder if you're the kind of person who's prone to focus on the rules and feel proud when you live up to your own standards and judgmental when other people fail to keep them. Does your religion consist mainly of keeping rules or on worshipping your creator from your heart and loving other people in spite of their flaws how are you when you see another person mess up in your heart beware scratch the average evangelical Christian and there's a Pharisee underneath that's the first picture the nitpicker. Secondly, we're moving on in the gallery now to the second picture. And this group of people are totally different. The Sadducees, verse 18. Then, it's like, who's next? Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, the Sadducees are really the opposite of the Pharisees. They are the aristocratic group. They are the upper class people, actually. And they come from priestly families. They're associated with the temple. They've been in business a long time. They've gone up the social ladder and they've reached the top. They're wealthy and they're conservative socially and theologically. They wouldn't accept any biblical writings after the first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. They wouldn't accept anything after that. And because those five books don't talk about the resurrection being raised from the dead, they wouldn't accept it. And that's why they were sad, you see. I can never talk about them without that. Anyway. So they come, and they bait Jesus with this teasing little story. It's a fantasy story, actually, created based on an ancient law of leveret marriage. Now, the reason for this, this law which was basically if uh, someone, a guy married a woman and then he, he dropped down dead before she'd had any children, um, his brother, unmarried brother, would be, could be obliged to marry the widow in order to, to give her children and so that her male sons would inherit the name and the estate and that part of the family would be preserved. So the, the, this ancient custom which went back hundreds of years had been put in place to try and protect the brother's inheritance in the family um, and give the widow her own family in fact there's a, a part in the story of Joseph Genesis 38 there's an episode where a brother did marry the widow but, but failed to keep his side of the bargain now the Sadducees they because they, they're all into the Pentateuch they know this law but they turn it into a crazy one bride for seven brothers plot what a great film that would make. By the way, it's very unlikely this ever happened. But what they're trying to do is catch Jesus out by making the idea of the resurrection look ridiculous. Just imagine these seven brothers are all raised from the dead. And in comes the, oh, whose wife is she? You know, and they all start fighting. 
doing a song and dance. But you know, these people, are, these Sadducees are cynics. They're cynical. And they're making a basic, crucial error. They assume that resurrection life will be just like life as we experience it, although in this case, even more chaotic. That is a crucial error. Dick Kyes is a Christian writer. He works at Le Brie Center in Massachusetts. He says that the cynic is a person who thinks that they can see through everything, any truth claim, any claim to integrity or goodness. They, they think they can see through it. And of course, our, our media, our, the online world, is full of cynicism, people claiming to see through. Nothing is sacred. Everything is fake. Even news is fake now. There's reason to be skeptical about everything. But Kais points out that the one thing cynics are not skeptical about is their own ability to see through things. Now, how about seeing through yourself? Jesus turns on the Sadducees and he gives them a stern rebuke for two reasons. Verse 24. This is pretty stinging. Are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? You don't even know your Bible or the power of God, and you're only reading the first five books. <laughs> now, firstly, what's the Bible argument? It seems quite obscure, doesn't it, this argument that Jesus makes? Let me find it. Um, it's in verses 25, uh, sorry, 26. Now, about the dead rising, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses, their own book, the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am. Let's pause. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. You're badly mistaken. Now, what's this argument about? Jesus makes a key point there in verse 26 based on the tense of a single verb. I am the God of Abraham. When Moses met God at the burning bush, this bush in the desert that was on fire and burning, but it never burned up or stopped burning. He just kept because the presence of God was within it. God spoke to him from within. It's one of those moments in the Bible called a theophany, an actual manifestation of the presence of God in the world. And God identified himself with these words. This is very, very profound and sacred. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Was. But I am. The living God is not the God of the dead. In other words, the hope for life after death doesn't hang on the idea of some part of us being immortal. The Greeks wanted that. They believed that some part, the soul, would live forever and try to construct something around that. Not, not so the Bible. The ground of our confidence in resurrection is that God is committed to us. We have a God who cannot, at our death, Scrap something that is precious to him. And Jesus' second argument is the power of God. They don't understand God's power. The one who spoke and everything that is came into being. We know how big, well, we, we're starting to realize, aren't we, how big, vast the cosmos is? How many stars and galaxies there are? We've talked about this before in Grace Church how the universe is, is still expanding, how vast it is, how tiny we are. We know that God, those of us who believe in him, 
spoke it into being. Now, the error of the Sadducees is that they imagine that the future resurrection life will be sort of simply like this one, but sort of an extension. You know, you've got your semi-detached house. At the resurrection, you get an extension on the back. Great. Jesus responds, don't think that resurrection life is just a continuation of the same thing, but going on for longer. Actually, that would be pretty awful, wouldn't it? He says that resurrected people would be transformed into a new kind of life. A new dimension of life that we have never experienced. Verse 25, they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, of course, we would all love to know more about that, wouldn't we? What does that mean? The answer is, I don't know. Jesus doesn't go into detail. What we do know from the New Testament about the resurrection is, firstly, we will be embodied. Not just spirits floating around or cherubs on clouds, but physically embodied people. And the first example of that is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He was recognizable, but he was changed. He could move in and out of this physical world at will. He could enter a locked room without opening the door, and he could move in and out of it, but he was still human, physical. He could eat. He ate fish to show that he wasn't a ghost. He also said to one of his followers, see my hands and my side which is a strong hint that he still bore the scars of his crucifixion. Still Jesus, but glorified. And the wonder of the New Testament is that Jesus never left that body. He's still embodied and always will be. And that's our hope of the resurrection. Secondly, we will keep our personality in eternity. And you're thinking, oh no, I really wanted a new personality. Resurrection is personal. It is you, the real you, but free from sin and suffering. And thirdly, what we know from the Bible is that heaven is a world of love. How do we know that? Well, partly we can deduce it from the nature of the God we worship, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who've loved each other from eternity and created this world and us as an overflow of their love. But also from this passage, verse 25, when the dead rise, says Jesus, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Marriage will be redundant in the world to come. I remember once some years ago speaking about this or some other similar passage, and a young man uh, who was then in our church came and spoke to me quite concerned afterward. He just got married a few months or a couple of years before, and he was so in, in love with his his wife, <laughs> as I am now, 20 years on, by the way. Just if you hear her cackling, ignore it, please. And he said, ha, 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 won't we be married in the future? Now, the problem with it is this. He's still thinking that the resurrection life will be like this one, but extended. And if I don't have her, then it'll somehow be diminished. That's because we don't grasp the wonder and, and of, of heaven being a world of love. You see, the communion and friendship that we will enjoy with everyone in the world to come will be infinitely beyond the best love that we have enjoyed here. It will be infinitely beyond even the closest and most intimate marriage. We will experience love as we've never known it. Marriage? It's sort of like stabilizers on a bike. It won't be necessary. Now, there's no mention here of how these Sadducees 
responded to Jesus. I suspect they sniffed and turned up their noses and continued in their wealth and cynicism. How tragic that would be, though, to cut yourself off from eternal life because you can't imagine it. Can you see yourself in this picture? You know, like many people today, the Sadducees ridiculed the idea of the afterlife just because they can't imagine it. Do you see yourself there? Do you limit God and what he could do by your own lack of imagination? Come on. There's a much wider, bigger rationality out there. And you're glimpsing it today in the words of Jesus. Third picture, the seeker. We're going to move on. Now, the third picture in the gallery is a little bit lighter. Uh, there's some shafts of sunlight breaking in. It has a lighter mood. We might even say this picture is hopeful. This time, it's a teacher of the law or a scribe, and he hears the debate going on. Have a look over the page, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He decides he's going to pop his own question. And what a question it is. It's the $64,000 question. Of all the commandments, which one is the most important? Now, the teachers of the law were highly respected uh, legal experts. They were scholarly. They knew the law of God like the back of their hand. They had worked out that there were 613 commands in the Old Testament law, and they would study and debate which of them was the greatest. So this is a very important question. Which is the greatest command? And Jesus doesn't pause for a moment. And verse 30, he responds. This is something that was known in uh, the Hebrew language as the Shema which from the Hebrew word to hear. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6. You know, we read this every time we do a thanksgiving for a new baby at our church. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus has just boiled down the whole of God's law, the whole of ethics, into a single principle. Love. Love to God and other people. Now that is the heart of what it means to live a moral, ethically upright life according to the Bible. Notice the balance. It's not love instead of law, as though law is this kind of restrictive cold thing but loves where it's really at no no it's love through the law of God we don't excuse ourselves from keeping God's commands just because we want to love someone the loving thing to do in life is to keep God's law his moral law now I'll give an example of this you might think in a given situation that the most loving thing you could do would be to lie to someone shade the truth hold something back but God's law would restrain you from that. To be a truly loving person, you will need to tell the truth. Obviously, you tell it in a loving way. But we don't have permission to fiddle around with God's laws. So the greatest commandment, Jesus says, the essence of the ethical life is love. And in the Bible, love isn't first and foremost a feeling and an emotion, but an action and a duty. So what does it mean to love our neighbor, the people around us? It means to give priority to their needs and concerns. That's how we love ourselves. You know, we do love ourselves even if we 
don't like what we see in the mirror, or we wish we could lose 20 pounds, or we, you know, we wish we would. We still love ourselves because we give so much priority to our own needs and concerns. And Jesus says, love your neighbor, make their needs, their concerns, your priority as much as your own, if not more. And we love God when we make his concerns supreme in our life. Not making God revolve around us, but sitting at his feet, listening to his word, meditating on his beauty, listening to what he wants to say to us and building our lives around him. All your heart, Jesus says, that's the control center of your life. All your soul, the inner you with all its thoughts and feelings and emotions. All your mind, your intellectual powers and your thought life. All your strength, your power and your energy. All of it to be focused on loving God. All of you. Now notice the response of this seeker, the teacher of the law. Verse 32, he gladly affirms the answer. He really loves hearing what Jesus said. He says, well said, teacher. You're right, saying that God is one and there's no other but him. Then he says something that's actually quite risky. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see what he said? He's in the temple. Keep your voice down. This is where they do the burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's like the library. Shh. You don't say that in the temple. He's got it. The guy is actually seeing through the sacrificial system and all of the offerings that they were to make were really just a picture of the true life that God wants, which is to love him and other people. That's what we're called to. So the guy's seen it. And Jesus sees that he's answered wisely. He's getting it. The pennies start to drop. But what happened next? I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We'll, all we have got to go on is verse 34. Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any questions. You're not far. You know, that means he's pretty close. Pretty close. But it also means not in the kingdom of God. Not far, but not in. You're not yet in the kingdom of God. Now, do you see yourself in this picture? Is this one like a mirror? After all, you're here in church this morning, listening to a sermon from the Bible. You could see some of the truth about Jesus, I guess, and you like it, some of it. You can see the positive aspects of the Christian faith. Maybe you've seen your Christian friend's life and there's, you've seen change in them. You like it. You, you think, that's great. Why are they changed like that? You want to know more. You are a seeker, and that is really good. But can I point out that being a seeker is also a dangerous occupation? Because some people become contented with just seeking and never committing. I've seen them come and go over the years in our church. There's a comfort in being around Christians, being around the community, being around the truth, sort of being near Jesus, a bit like standing near the fire. But you can be commitment phobic with Jesus. You never really commit to him. You just keep seeking until you drift away. Now, at the end of the day, that means you are just as excluded from Jesus' kingdom as the person who never gave it a moment's thought. Don't just stay a seeker. 
come in to the kingdom. The nitpicker, the cynic, the seeker. The fourth one I'd love to skip for my own sake, but I have to talk about him. The show off. Verse 38. Jesus really here goes on the offensive and uh, the crowd are loving it. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Ouch. These are actually the religious people. They're the ones in church. Do you know more than that? In Grace Church terms, they're on the rotor. They're in a team. In fact, they're actually leading a team. In fact, they might be an elder or a preacher or a pastor. They're the ones everyone can see. You know, being at the front, this side of the microphone is a dangerous place. You can start to do things for our people's approval. And there is a big warning for us here, for us Christians, not to be like the teachers of the law. Verse 38, craving recognition, craving status. They're not serving their people, really. They're using people to get praise. And those of us who are in leadership in the church can do that. Verse 39, they are focused on power, not gentle and meek service. What are they really concerned about? Verse 39, the most important seats and the places of honor. That shows who they are. You know, I'm the one wearing the clothes that show that I'm different from everyone else. And I'm sitting in this place that shows I'm more important. You guys are second tier Christians. Some of you are third tier. It's all right. I'm here. <laughs> They're jealous of their turf. They want to have the top seats. And verse 40 is, is terrible. A young person in our life group asked me this week, what does it mean to devour a widow's house? What an expression it is. It's to take something from a person who's vulnerable so that they're left worse off. In this case, it could be money. We can take other things from people. We can use our position in church to feed ourselves, our own ego, our own status, to make people, they miss the whole point of love your neighbor as yourself because fundamentally they are loving themselves. They tend to serve those who can repay them and not care about those others. They minister where they can get something back. Do you see anything of yourself in this picture? They don't see ministry, whatever that is, all Christian service is ministry, by the way. They don't see ministry as an opportunity for service, but a sphere for personal advancement. Christian friends, leaders, staff team, team leaders, life group leaders, do you see yourself in this picture? Let's repent. Finally, the fifth and final picture in the gallery is the lover. The lover, you say? I didn't see a Frenchman wearing a beret and playing a violin. Next, the lover. Chapter 12, verse 41. 
Jesus then sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Apparently in the temple in Jerusalem, there were a number of collection boxes that were shaped like the shofar, the horns, and when the, the coins went in, they made a ringing sound showing that the money had gone in. And the rich people come in this episode, and they're the ones who've got a lot of resources, and they come with a pretty big donation. I mean, quite impressive. And everybody sees it. You know, <laughs> Jesus is sitting there, and it's very plain who the rich ones are, probably from the cut of their jib and their clothes, but also from the fact that they bring loads of money. And they throw it into this thing, and it makes a big Ka-ching. And then this little old widow comes creeping along. And it says she's poor. And she has got nothing. We would say she hasn't got a brass bean. She got, hasn't got two pence to rub together, hardly. Well, she's got two pence to rub together. And that's it. Many years ago, there was a coin in Britain called the half pence. Do any of you remember the, the half pence piece? It was tiny, wasn't it? When I was a kid, growing up in Newcastle, we used to get these half, half pences, and the thing is, you could buy one little sweet, a chew, with them at the corner shop. So if we got a half pence, we'd go and buy this one little chew and just try and make it last as long as possible. All this widow has got is two small brown copper coins. And she comes along in an unobtrusive way and just drops them in quietly. And there isn't a big ka-ching. There's barely a rattle. And Jesus Christ looks at her and he says the most amazing thing. This poor widow was put more into the treasury than all the others, than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. She put it all in. Now, why does Mark put this story here? It's to make a contrast. She is the complete opposite of the nitpicking, self-righteous Pharisee, of the cynical, privileged Sadducee. She is all in. How could you give all your money only if you really love God and you really trust him? Otherwise, it's suicide. She loves God and she trusts him. I can give this, I don't know how, but I'm going to eat. That's the lover. Now this, by the way, is not a guide to financial giving to the church. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, said, that widow's might has cost us many a thousand pounds. <laughs> it's not a guide to say you should give a small amount. It is a picture of devotion. She's a lover of God, and so she's willing to lose control of her life. Because that's what money is, isn't it? It's control. You know, if I've got enough money, I can kind of control my life. She lets go of it and trusts God. Now, are you doing that? Not talking about money so much as your life. Maybe you're the seeker. Maybe you're a Christian who's holding something back. Maybe you're on the fence. I don't know. I don't know. You know. Are, are you a lover of God? Willing to let him take charge. Knowing that you can trust him. 
But what turns one of us, and I guess I've seen myself in most of those pictures, if I'm honest, maybe not the fifth one, what turns one of us into a lover like that, a true lover of God? The answer is seeing the artist. Seeing the artist. Not only does he know our hearts, our secrets, what we're really like, he knows us, he also loves us in spite of it all. The artist. And knowing his love will change your heart to love him and, and then love your neighbor. And you say, okay, I didn't see the artist in the gallery. You did. We skipped a bit. Look back at verse 35. Here is Jesus' description of himself in a riddling quote from Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, the psalm that the early Christians went to to understand Jesus. Here it is, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110, declared, the Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is the great psalm of the coming king. The right hand of God is the place of ultimate power and authority. And God himself in this psalm speaks to a human lord and says, you sit there until I subjugate all your enemies. And every power that's set against you is reduced and humble. And David, the great king, said that this human king would be his lord. But also he's his descendant because they said that the, descent, the Messiah will come from David's line. So how is it, Jesus says, that he can be David's son, his descendant, and be his Lord? It's a mystery. It's a riddle. And of course what Jesus is doing here, just for a moment, is lifting up the, cor the corner of the curtain and letting us see some of his glory. He's letting us see a little bit of his glory. It shines out like there's something golden and bright like the sun behind there. Because what this psalm tells us in this mysterious way is that Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, born a baby in a stable in Bethlehem, is also the eternal son of God, seated at God's right hand. And he used all his power and all his strength to become one of us, to live our life, to experience the humiliation of being a human, to suffer, be killed, and rise again. He gave all that he had to win you. You see, the widow put in everything she had. But Jesus Christ did even more so. He put in everything he had on the cross to win you and me. Perhaps there, at the foot of his cross, is the place where we will find our hearts will change. The place where the nitpicker will let go of keeping the rules and want to pursue a life of love. The place where the cynic will finally see through themselves and embrace the one true light. The place where the seeker will stop searching and find. The place where the show-offs will be truly humbled and all of us together will become lovers of God and of one another. Let's pray that that would be the case. Let's pray.